Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. President Trump likes to threaten that he will withdraw from America's trade deals. And in this episode, we're going to try to answer the question of whether he can actually do it, or if he tried, whether there might be a way to try to stop him. A warning that this episode is going to contain a lot of law. But obviously, the economics is really important. Trump is trying to use the threat of withdrawal from these trade deals to extract concessions from other countries that he's negotiating new deals with. If he can't actually follow through with this threat to withdraw from the trade deal, then he doesn't have as much leverage as he thinks he does. Now, legal disclaimer. I'm an economist, not a lawyer. I'm also an economist, some might say even a journalist. Definitely not a lawyer. We have tried not to make this too jargony for The Economists while maintaining legal precision. But I can predict that we are not going to be able to please everybody. Here's the headline. President Trump could withdraw from the NAFTA or maybe even the WTO. But if he did, he would surely be challenged in the courts. And there are some pretty strong legal arguments that would go against him. To summarize those legal arguments, we've enlisted the help of three lawyers. Rachel Brewster of Duke Law School, Joel Trackman of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and my colleague here at the Peterson Institute, Gary Huffbauer. We should be specific about the premise of this question. So clearly, if the president wants to withdraw from a deal and both the House of Representatives and the Senate agree, then together they can do whatever they want. So the question is, what happens when President Trump wants to withdraw from a trade deal, but Congress does not want him to? And we'll return to this, but one thing to bear in mind is withdrawing from a trade deal isn't as simple as it sounds. Some bits seem to be easier to pull out of than others. So unfortunately, it's not quite as clear-cut as saying, today we're in and tomorrow we're out. Let's do some U.S. Constitution 101, because fundamentally the answer depends on what American law does and does not allow the president to do. Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So one could say that trade deals count as regulating foreign commerce. One could, but then you also have Article 2 of the Constitution, and that gives the president the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties. So this tension arises because you could also say that trade deals count as treaties. Here's Rachel Brewster. Congress has the power under the U.S. Constitution in Article 1 to regulate commerce. But if Congress wants any type of reciprocal trade arrangement, then they have to involve the president because under Article 2 of the Constitution, only the president has the power to negotiate trade agreements. Congress can't negotiate a trade agreement by itself because Article 2 says the president does treaties. But in practice, the president also hasn't just gone off and negotiated and implemented a trade deal by himself. The president and Congress essentially end up doing it together. Here's Rachel again. The modern practice of the United States is to enter into trade agreements through something called a congressional executive agreement. Congressional executive agreements is where the president goes out and negotiates trade agreements, and then those trade agreements are presented to Congress, basically as a statute. And so the trade agreement needs a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate to be ratified for the international level and then implemented into domestic law on the domestic level. There are two legal objects you have to bear in mind. 
there's the international treaty, and then there's a piece of legislation that actually implements the promises made in domestic law. And it's the second bit that can turn out to be important. Since the 1970s, U.S. trade agreements have involved more than just changing tariffs, but also tackling non-tariff barriers to trade. So think of food safety, weird product standards that regulate trade, anti-dumping, or even that controversial investor-state dispute settlement. Any trade agreement that has new rules for those things requires modifying U.S. domestic law. And the president can't do that on his own. Ultimately, changing even just a little bit of U.S. domestic law requires a majority of votes in both the House and the Senate. So that's partially what's led to these congressional executive agreements that Rachel described. Okay, so that's how trade deals get added to U.S. law. But we're talking about the reverse of that procedure here. We're talking about President Trump, who wants to take these trade deals out of U.S. law. Let's run through what would actually happen if the president were to trigger a withdrawal from NAFTA or the WTO or maybe one of those U.S. bilateral free trade agreements like the one with Colombia. Here's Gary Huffbauer on the three stages. First is sending a letter. In my view, it is all but certain that the president can send any letter he wants to any other head of a foreign country. So let's just take President Pina Nieto of Mexico or Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada. And he can send them letters saying, you know, the U.S. intends to withdraw following the formula in the agreement, which is six months from the date of the letter, the U.S. intends to withdraw. Second stage is actually when the six months comes saying, now I withdraw. Well, that's more controversial because that changes or potentially changes commercial relations with the country, whether it be Mexico or Colombia or with all the WTO members. Third would be the step of saying, okay, we've withdrawn. No longer is the U.S. tariff schedule what was committed by the implementing legislation in the prior presidential proclamation, which carried out U.S. promises in the agreement. And that is where, you know, the rubber will hit the road and where the litigation will get truly hot is in actually changing tariffs as a result of having withdrawn or, for that matter, terminating other provisions that were in the implementing legislation, such as limits on what the U.S. can do in imposing anti-dumping duties or countervailing duties for subsidies or Uh, dispute settlement for investment expropriation. There's a lot in there, so let's break it down. If the president tries to withdraw from, say, NAFTA, the text of the agreement says that you have to give six months' notice. That is the time difference that Gary mentioned between steps one and two. President Trump is likely to face legal challenge. And that challenge that Trump would face is whether he has the legal authority to withdraw on his own without congressional approval. Here's Gary again. The big constitutional question, which will be raised if Trump goes forward with these uh, threats to terminate U.S. membership in NAFTA or the WTO or any other trade agreement, and that is whether the agreement is essentially an Article I agreement, Article I sets out the powers of the Congress, or is essentially an Article II agreement. Article II, in very broad terms, sets out the powers of the president. On this first big constitutional question, Gary thinks the case of whether he can send the withdrawal letter is pretty straightforward. The president's attorneys will go back in the record and they will have no difficulty, absolutely no difficulty, finding very responsible statements by former cabinet members, indeed former presidents, former 
Joint Chiefs of Staff, Senators, saying how important that agreement was to the foreign policy of the United States. I mean, it was very clear that all these trade agreements had a huge foreign policy component of cementing the Western alliance. So that's the president's very strong argument for not only sending the letter, but then when it comes to the withdrawal date, saying, now we're no longer in it because this is a foreign policy agreement in large part. But what about the practical bits that are actually important for the economy? Could President Trump actually raise tariffs or add in some of those non-tariff barriers that the original NAFTA was supposed to remove? That's a bit less clear. Here's Joel Trachtman. Exclusive power to regulate commerce is granted by the Constitution to Congress. So if the president purported to terminate one of these treaties, the NAFTA or the Korea-U.S. Free Trade Agreement or the WTO, he would be re-regulating commerce in a way that would violate that part of the Constitution. Now, historical practice in this area is somewhat mixed, but historically, most commercial agreements were terminated only with congressional authorization, and the few that were terminated without congressional authorization were in exceptional types of cases. The question is whether Trump can fully withdraw from a trade deal without the approval of Congress. The argument against saying that he can't would be that the Constitution gave Congress the power to regulate commerce, and that by withdrawing without their consent, the president is overriding that power and that he is breaking American law. President Trump would probably disagree. He'd probably argue that, yep, he he can do it, and the courts would have to decide. Here's Gary. One of the main functions if not the most important function of the Supreme Court of the United States, is to decide which branch of government has which powers, reading the Constitution. In this area that we're dealing with today, there are very, very few Supreme Court decisions as to the powers of the Congress and the President over trade agreements. This is really new terrain. In other words, we don't have a lot of evidence to go on. If you really want to get into the legal weeds, there was a case in 1979, Goldwater versus Carter. That case challenged President Carter's authority to unilaterally withdraw the United States from a defense treaty with Taiwan. Some say that that one set some kind of legal precedent for the courts stepping back and saying, "Eh, not really one for us, this is a political question. The president can do whatever he wants when the treaty is all about foreign policy, and that would go in Trump's favor to say that, yep, he can decide whether or not to terminate these trade deals. But there's another and more recent example. This one is Zivotofsky versus Clinton, where the courts decided, yep, we actually are able to adjudicate these types of issues, even though it's in the realm of foreign policy. And the point is that if the courts do decide, then they might look at the case and agree with the kind of arguments that Joel Trachtman has made, which is that these treaties like NAFTA and the WTO have a lot to do with commerce. And that falls under the Constitution's Article 1. And so there is a role for Congress. And Trump can't just withdraw without their consent. So those are some of the legal arguments you might hear if this were to happen. The other thing I was interested in is how the mechanics of a legal challenge of this might actually work. Congress could potentially do it, but we asked Gary who else would be able to submit one of these challenges. Or, in legal speak, who is it that could claim that they've been harmed and so they have standing to file a dispute like this in the U.S. courts? There are plenty of other people who have standing. I mean, think of all the companies 
who built their supply chains on the basis of NAFTA, for example. Well, they they face a real injury. I mean, this is not something hypothetical. Some congressman saying, well, you know, that's not what uh, the law meant, blah, blah, blah. No, there's a real company that can come in with evidence that they're going to lose millions of dollars. They definitely have standing. But in addition to those companies, there would be, I think, state attorney general representing their state, Texas, for example, who would say, look, this is going to be very harmful to the state of Texas. We're going to lose, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of business and uh, employment. The other question you might ask is how long this legal challenge might take. If you're a business trying to plan, you really want to know how quickly any uncertainty is going to get resolved. Remember President Trump's travel ban? You could get something like that, where a company or the attorney general of a state has standing and files a legal challenge, and the court issues something called an injunction. This could happen as fast as within a few days to basically stop the president or to freeze whatever he's trying to do. If that very speedy block doesn't work, then you could end up with a legal battle that could take years and years to resolve, as the case would have to work its way through the legal system and eventually end up at the Supreme Court. If it does get stuck in the courts, then we could end up with something that some have been calling a zombie NAFTA, where it's kind of in legal limbo, and if you're a business trying to make decisions, you have a really, really tough time planning anything on the basis of its continued existence. We mentioned this right at the start, but within the law, there does seem to be some things that are easier for the president to do on his own than others. Suppose the president withdraws from the international treaty. Then there are various clauses in the NAFTA implementation legislation that give the president the power to raise tariffs. Here's Rachel. The way that the legislation is written is generally that the tariffs are actually very easy for the president to change. But there's a lot of other regulatory elements of NAFTA that would remain in domestic law and that Canadian and Mexican firms might still be able to use and keep the advantages of. So, for instance, with the Chapter 19 binational panels on countervailing duties and anti-dumping, Mexican and Canadian firms For instance, a Canadian lumber firm might still be able to claim under U.S. domestic legislation that they are entitled to the binational panel and not just standard American anti-dumping practice. So if President Trump tried to withdraw, we could end up in this odd situation where he raised the tariffs on his own. That got challenged in the courts and that could take years. And meanwhile, all the non-tariff bits are still sitting there as part of the deal. And that could end up with the U.S. being in a really funny position because As all of this is going on, as we record this episode, the U.S. is currently negotiating with Canada over how to change all of these non-tariff bits of the deal. So it would be strange if the one thing that the president could do was raise these tariffs and then all these things that the U.S. is currently battling with the Canadians over, they might just sit on the books. Yeah, that would be really strange if it turned out that Chapter 19, this dispute settlement system that Ambassador Lighthizer really seems to dislike, if that was the one part of the deal that stuck around, well, all the tariffs, in fact, went up. Last question. We asked Joel what Congress could do to stop the president if he tried to do this. If Congress wished to, before the president sends a notice of termination... Congress could pass legislation specifying that the president cannot terminate these treaties without its approval. And under the Commerce Clause, I believe that Congress has the power 
to pass that legislation. It could do so by ordinary legislation, but as you might anticipate, the president would probably veto that legislation, and then to pass a bill over the president's objections would require a two-thirds vote in each of the Senate and the House of Representatives. So far, it does not seem like Congress has wanted to pick a fight with a president over trade. And it, it's worth emphasizing that if it did decide it wanted to pick that fight, then it would be really, really hard to marshal the troops. I don't know if you've noticed, but Democrats and Republicans generally struggle to get along these days. To get two thirds of both houses of Congress to agree on this would be really, really difficult. Maybe the president sending this withdrawal letter could make them want to pick that fight and pass legislation to clarify that yep, he does need their permission if he wants to withdraw. Maybe. We'll see. That is all for Trade Talks. Thank you to Gary Huffbauer of the Peterson Institute, Joel Trachtman at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and especially Rachel Brewster at Duke Law School for taking her time out of her Hurricane Florence evacuation plans to join us. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks also to our Trade Talks lawyer, Jennifer Hillman, for her help as well. And also to my Peterson Institute colleague, Chris Collins, for being the voice of the U.S. Constitution. And thanks again to our audio guy, Colin Warren, for making us sound as shiny as a brand new trade deal. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone you know about it. And tell us too. On Twitter, I'm at, at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to podcast legal disclaimers, two is better than one. Trade Talks is not a law firm. Trade Talks is not a substitute for the advice of a trade lawyer. Trade Talks is not permitted to engage in the practice of law, even though Samir and Chad talk about law a lot. Trade Talks is prohibited from providing any kind of legal advice, explanation, opinion, or recommendation to countries seeking to withdraw from trade agreements. Terminate after or withdraw from the WTO at your own risk. Side effects from Trade Talks include nausea, headaches, and excessive use of acronyms. Consult your doctor.